Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. So we've been studying, or we started a new study about angels and demons, and the first uh, Sunday we were together about this topic was more of an introduction into the study of angels, or angelology is what it's called. Um, we're going to be, of course, continuing our study in that, and then we'll get to uh, demons and, and all that sort of thing. We want to have a right understanding of the angelic host. As angels are mentioned about 250 times uh, in the Scripture altogether from the Old to the New. So it is definitely uh, something we need to grasp, a, a good understanding of. Um, we started out in Colossians 1 of talking about angels and demons for that matter, that the ones who created them was Christ. Christ is the creator of all the angelic hosts, including all the fallen angels that are now known as demons, which also includes Satan himself. Satan is a created being and he is created by Christ. So the idea of Satan somehow being on equal par with Jesus is, is just nonsense. Uh, we talked about before that there were different classifications of angels that at least many theologians believe that there are many classifications according to the text of Colossians, the principalities and powers and thrones and all of that, very well may be. Uh, we know that cherubim are mentioned in the Scripture, seraphim are mentioned, archangels are mentioned. There are indeed different ranks of angels, uh, all having the same particular functions uh, for the most part. Um, we also were looking at how angels... Uh, are created, of course, by Christ, but they are created um, for the purpose, uh, or well, not necessarily for the purpose of, but they rejoice before the Lord. One of their primary functions is to glorify God, and we'll look at that in depth today as well. Um, but angels also being powerful beings. They are referred to as spirit, as spirits, ministering spirits. Uh, but they do have some kind of a form because they cannot be everywhere at once as God is, and so there's some kind of a form that they have in order to move from here to there, which the Scriptures also describe to us. They are very powerful. One angel killed 185,000 Assyrians. So, indeed, they are very powerful. Uh, one angel did that. We talked about how that there is no shortage of angels. Revelation describes myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of angels, as does Daniel. Jesus Himself said when they're in the garden and Jesus is being arrested and Peter pulls out His sword and He cuts off the ear of Malchus. Jesus reattaches the ear, but He tells Peter, He says, don't you know that I can call twelve legions if I wanted? And a legion being anywhere from three thousand to six, some estimate higher, but that's Twelve legions that Jesus Himself could call. We talked about the kerosene demoniac who Himself had a legion of demons inside Him. Um, and we'll eventually get to the fact that maybe how many angels, 
compared to demons and all of that. Uh, a place to start and maybe to look up between now and then is Revelation 12, as it talks about Satan himself taking a third of the angels with him. So you have two-thirds elect angels, holy angels, versus one-third of the demons and all of that. That's a definitely, definitely a comforting thing. Well, you talked about as well how there are many misconceptions of, and this is a very brief thing, but there are many misconceptions of demons, of hell, all of that, uh, because people think that Satan is ruling and reigning in hell, and that there are demons there. And when you die and you are an unconverted person, that you go to, well, it's actually Hades, if you want to get technical, it's Hades, the holding place of the dead, awaiting your final judgment, but that there are demons there who are torturing you, carrying out all, carrying out all kinds of, of different tortures to those who are there. And that is simply not true. There are only certain demons that are in hell, those that left their first estate, left their first abode that Peter talks about, that Jude talks about, that are being held in chains, awaiting their judgment. Uh, we can get into some more of that later. Um, as to exactly who those particular angels are and what it was that they did. But, uh, suffice to say now that they're the only ones that are there. There are no other demons in hell. They're all here. In this place. On the earth. Hell is a place where demons themselves will be under the wrath of God. They don't bring about any wrath towards any unbelievers. When a person goes to hell, the wrath that they are enduring is God. You know, and we'll talk more about that too because people think as well, well, uh, the thing that makes hell hell is because the absence of God. And that's not true. Hell is hell because of the very presence of God, His righteous wrath against the unbelieving. If His wrath is there, then He is there. And that's what makes hell hell. But we have all kinds of different views. If you read, of course, Dante's Inferno or Dante's, you know, uh, uh, there's three stories there. I forgot what the other one is. Purgatory, and then there was another one. But, you know, they, they have like the seven circles of hell, and each hell has its own particular torture or whatever. Uh, and, and, of course, demons being there, and that's just that's fanciful ideas that have no grounding within the Scripture. You have others within the more charismatic uh, groups today that think that, Jesus, whenever He died on the cross, that He went to hell and that He was trampled on by demons. <laughs> I can't help it. Uh, it's so silly. How about no? That never happened either. So there are some various views that are out there concerning demons, concerning angels. And by the way, air, uh, angels especially, I know we were just singing the song about cherubim and seraphim, Cherubim are not little baby-looking angels with wings. No, they are indeed fierce creatures. Intensely terrifying when you see them. And we saw that, of course, the description of them in Revelation chapter 4. Also in Ezekiel, you have the same description. These are creatures that you don't trifle with. They are indeed fierce. They are powerful and they definitely don't look like bait. So we want to have a right understanding of what it is that they do. What kind of things do they do for the believer? 
How do they minister towards God? How do they minister towards Jesus Himself? The believing. What is their relationship with the unbelieving? These are things we want to explore. Now, I have you turned here to Hebrews chapter 1. This is a passage that we've been over before. But I do want to make it very clear as well that what we don't want to do is to confuse angels with the angel of the Lord. We read of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. We don't at all read of the angel of the Lord in the New because we believe that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is indeed the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But we're going to go over that this morning as well. But here in our text, we're going to learn of something of the function of the angelic host. What it is that they do. And, and we'll look at a few passages here in chapter 1. So let's stand together. Let's read verses 5 to 14 to put everything in context. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible Word of the living God. Let us hear the Word of the living God. For to which of the angels did He ever say, You are My Son, today I have begotten you. And again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has He ever said, Sit at My right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this portion of Your Word which teaches us something about the function of angels, of how they minister towards You, how they minister towards believers. Father, I pray that You would open our hearts and our minds to understand this correctly. There are so many different views of angels today, whether in other world religions or things that we find in media. We want to have a right understanding of Your creation. So guide our thoughts and bless the preaching of Your Word and may it accomplish all You desire in us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Now, as I said, the one thing we don't want to do is confuse angels with the angel of the Lord. Now, why is it that we would think that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is not an angel? Why do we think it is God? Why do we think it's specifically Christ? Well, turn with me to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16 you have Sarai and Hagar. First, the promise has been given to Abraham and Sarai that they are going to indeed have a son, even in their old age. But things are not going as they as quickly as they would like. And so Sarai says to Abraham, Here, 
take my handmaid and then have a child by her. So Abraham indeed took Hagar and uh, took her to be um, his wife. And it says in verse 4, He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abraham, May the wrong done me upon you be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. This is a very bad situation here, apparently, right? But look what happens, and then look who appears. But Abraham, but Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone's, everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she called the name of, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? So you have Sarai who sends out Hagar, or well, she's treated Hagar harshly. Hagar leaves uh, and flees from her presence. And then the angel of the Lord begins to talk to Hagar to tell her everything's going to be fine. You're going to have a son. He's going to, uh, the Lord is going to multiply him and all that. But he, he says these things in this way in the first person. I will greatly multiply him. I will greatly do this. And then when she's, when she gives this um, bit of praise here at the end, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees all. And then she asked the question, Have I even remained alive here after seeing Him? She knew that she was in the presence of God. And yet the title that was given here was the angel of the Lord. But He speaks in the first person as God, and then she even refers to Him as being God. In Exodus chapter 3, which is a very familiar passage to us as well, this is when Moses is out in the wilderness and he sees the burning bush. Exodus chapter 3, beginning verse 1. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Listen here. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the burning bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. 
He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, the first description we have is, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the blaze. And then he begins to speak as God, and he refers to himself as, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob. I am the God of your fathers, is what he's getting at, of course. But, He's referred to as the angel of the Lord. It's not a, an angel of the Lord. It's the angel of the Lord. Again, you have this understanding that Moses is in the presence of God. He is seeing God in the burning bush. And yet he's referred to as the angel of the Lord. In Judges chapter 6, and then we'll move on here. Judges chapter 6. We'll jump in here. Verse 11. This is when the Lord calls Gideon to rise up and defend Israel against their enemies. The Lord had delivered them into the hands of their enemies because of their disobedience. He says in verse 9, I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and disposed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. Verse 11, Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Oprah, and which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? And now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord looked at him and said, Go, and this your strength, and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? And he said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in, in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speaks with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you return. Then Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. He put the meat in a basket and broth in a pot and brought them out to him under the oak and presented them. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put an end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. When Gideon saw that he was the angel of the, of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, Peace to you, do not fear, you shall not, shall not die. <clears throat> so you have Gideon who has this encounter once again with the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord is speaking as God. 
he is sending Gideon. It is him that is doing it. It is he that is promising Gideon, I will be with you, all of this. Angels don't talk like that. Angels are ministering spirits. And when you find the angel in the book of Revelation, for example, who is showing John all the visions, he says to John, like, I'm a fellow servant here. You worship God. The angel doesn't speak on behalf of the Lord. The angel is showing him these visions. But this angel of the Lord is different. This angel of the Lord here is speaking authoritatively as God. Just as he did in Exodus. Just as he did in Genesis. Just as he does throughout the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter 1, chapter 3, etc. The angel of the Lord is God. A manifestation of God. A Christophany. Or you can call it a theophany. But many theologians believe that this is indeed the pre-incarnate Christ. And they would have good reason to do so because in the New Testament we read that no one has seen God at any time except the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. So if the Son has been manifested in order, in order to expound or explain the Father in the New, then that would be true of Him even in the Old. And again, we don't read of the angel of the Lord in the New Testament. <clears throat> but here in Hebrews we find something of the function of them. We don't want to confuse the angel of the Lord with what we're reading here. Here we are actually reading of the angelic host in Hebrews chapter 1. He says this of angels. Let all the angels of God worship Him. And that's the Greek word proskuneo, which means to prostrate yourself before Him. Bow down to worship. And then he says this, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, this is very important here. Because um, we're finding out some things about the function of angels, of how they minister towards God. Because they're called here ministers. His ministers a flame of fire. His angels winds. This word here, ministers, <clears throat> is the Greek word Eturgos, where we get the word liturgy, which tells us something about the priestly ministry of angels towards God. So that's what we're looking at. Uh, calling them wind and calling them fire, uh, perhaps expressing the fact of, of the speed as to which they serve God and the fervency and intensity that they serve God. But it's something of priestly worship that even angels are doing in reference to God. That one of their primary functions uh, of their creation is to glorify God. They are ministers of worship, if you will, in one sense, towards God. We read, remember, in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, what are the angels doing? They are praising God. In Isaiah chapter 6, Beginning of verse 1, a very familiar passage to us. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of His robe, filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. You have the angelic hosts that are around the throne of God that are crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy. 
And there's great significance there. Uh, he's not just holy. He's not just holy, holy, meaning He's holier than something else, but He is the holiest of all. Uh, theologians call that the trishagion. He is three times holy. So these angels are there. They are praising God. They are acknowledging the holiness of God. Continually in His presence, glorifying Him. The very same thing we read of in Revelation. Revelation chapter 4. And we get a description of these creatures as well. But Revelation chapter 4, beginning of verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, Come up here, this isn't the rapture by the way, and I will show you what must take place after these things. That was a little right in there. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out, out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature was like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and to Him who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things and because of Your will they existed and were created. So you have this fantastic uh, um, description, first off, of these angelic hosts that are there. But what are they doing? They're doing the very same thing that the seraphim are doing in Isaiah 6, that they are crying out, Holy, holy, holy before the Lord. But they are praising Him. Now, it is very important to say that they don't add anything to the glory of God because God is intrinsically holy and intrinsically glorious. He is who He is regardless of anything else. But the angels are indeed created... uh, as R.C. Sproul says, he says, angels attend our Lord in the manifestation of His glory. What R.C. Sproul says there. Their primary function is to worship. They sing together in Job 38 when the Lord says, when I laid the foundation of the earth, the morning stars sang together. They attend to God in that way of worshiping Him. But not only do they worship Him, that their priestly service that are that are done uh, unto the Lord, as we go back to Hebrews chapter one, are also done. Uh, give or, or is also a way of giving us the function of what they do. They are ready at any moment in order to render service to the Lord for whatever it is that He may 
dispatched them to do. Not only are they ministering to Him and His His glory, His uh, worship, ministers of worship, but the very word angel means messenger. Angelos in the Greek, Malak in Hebrew, means messenger. They are messengers for the Lord. That is another function that they do. So if you think of Gabriel in Luke chapter 1, whenever Gabriel comes to Mary and he says, you know, he announces the birth of Christ to her and, or announces the conception and all of that, that he says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Now, it seems as if him standing in the presence of God would be just like these other angelic creatures standing in the presence of God, rendering him worship, prostrating themselves before him, acknowledging his holiness until the Lord says, uh, you go do that. And then he goes to do whatever. He is Gabriel who stands in the presence of the Lord. Now, we read of Gabriel also in the Old Testament, in Daniel chapter 8. And this is describing their function as messengers. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 15, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, obviously he had a, a vision there. Go back and read all of that. But he has this vision. He sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Uli. And he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, Understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now while he was talking with me, I sank deep into a sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. He said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time. So you have Gabriel coming to Daniel. Here's, here's what this means. This vision you saw, let me explain it to you. So he is God's messenger to Daniel at this time, getting ready to explain these things. In chapter 9, verse 20, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my, of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Gabriel again, being dispatched by the Lord in order to come and to give him the answer, the understanding, for he is being, he is functioning as a messenger. That is what, uh, like I said, the very word is meaning. But I must confess to you here in Daniel 10 that we are reading of another angel that has come to give Daniel some understanding. But I had always assumed that this was Gabriel, but I don't, I don't think it is. For one, he's not identified as Gabriel. 
And two, Daniel does not identify him as one that I had previously talked with, as he just did in, in chapter 9. But here we read of something very interesting as well when it comes to the angelic host. <clears throat> in Daniel chapter 10, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who, who was named Belshazzar, and the message was true and one of great conflict, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat and wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Euphaz. His body was like beryl, his face had the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and his feet like gleams of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright. For I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was, was withstanding me for twenty-one days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. <clears throat> then he ends this after he gives him the understanding. Verse 20, Then he said to me, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. So you have something of uh, that, that struggle uh, that goes on between the angelic hosts and even demons that is being described there. But again, you have another angel not identified as Gabriel. Daniel doesn't identify him as the one that I previously saw. He comes to Daniel and he says, I have this message for you and I was prohibited from coming. But I'm here now and here it is. And now I have to return. So you have angels that are taking part and delivering the messages of the Lord. Now could it have been that God had just put it in his mind or that God specifically spoke to him? Uh, could he have done that? Absolutely. But God chose to use his ministers as a means in order to accomplish his will. So he sends angels in order to deliver messages, just as he does even in the new, as we talked about in Luke 1, when Gabriel comes to Mary and announces that she's going to be with child. You have Joseph, who also has these different visions and dreams. Of The angel tells Joseph in a dream 
in Matthew 2, you need to get up and you need to flee. You need to go to Egypt. There are people who are seeking the life of the child. And then after Herod dies, then Joseph has another dream and an angel appears to him again and says, okay, rise up, go back to Israel. The one who sought the child's life is now dead. So they're bringing messages. They're fulfilling the, the will of God by, sending, by being the messengers and bringing about uh, the word of the Lord uh, to various people. Are they not? Not only are they involved in just giving messages, but they were also involved in the giving of the law. Now this is a very interesting one, because it's like, well, we don't really read of any angels on Mount Sinai with Moses and the Lord. But listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, beginning of verse 9. The Apostle Paul says this, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been given. He's talking about the law. The law being ordained through angels. This is the very same thing that we read of in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, verses 52 and 53, when Stephen is giving his great uh, discourse. Acts 7, verse 52. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. And you received the law as ordained by angels, and yet did not keep it. Now, back over here, let me read this to you. In Hebrews, where we're at here, in chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews also says something very similar. Hebrews chapter 2, <clears throat> beginning of verse 1. For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience receive a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, and it was confirmed to us by those that heard. The writer of Hebrews is also referring to the fact of the giving of the law and angels being used as the agents to deliver it. Now when you go back to Exodus, Exodus 31, when the law was given, we don't want to read into the passage or anything, but this is perhaps something that we can reconcile here. This is when, of course, the Lord is speaking to Moses. He is delivering to him the law. And the Lord writes Himself upon the tablet. Verse 18, When He had finished speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, He gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written by the finger of God. So the, Now the text says that the Lord had written on it, the two tablets, but could it have been after the Lord had written the law on it that angels grabbed it and then delivered it to Moses? Could be. Seems to be the case that they took part in the giving of the law. Again, fulfilling the will of God and delivering the word of the Lord uh, to the prophet. They are involved in all kinds of things like that. 
not only are they uh, ministers of worship, not only do they render service to the Lord in the sense of being messengers of God, but they also are agents of God's rule in this world. These angels, fulfilling the law of God, help to restrain wickedness. Now this is very interesting. But in Genesis chapter 19, you have the angels who just meet with Abraham in chapter 18 that they are going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham is trying to bargain. The angels are then sent to Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19. Now what we read here is that when the angels come to Sodom, that the men of the city saw that they were beautiful and desired them carnally. Now, these men come to Lot's door. They begin to start beating on the door, desiring that Lot give them the two men, the two angels. And Lot is trying to restrain them, not allowing them to do so. And the angels uh, struck them with blindness. Verse 10. Actually, back at verse 9. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the door. Now, this great evil act that was trying to be done was then curtailed by the angels who struck them with blindness. But they couldn't even find the door. These angels also, uh, this is just one example, but you can understand that if angels in this sense are doing something in order to restrain the evil by bringing some type of a calamity or whatever, that they too would be uh, taking part in this even thereafter. They also, in one sense, are described as Controlling the elements. Now this is obviously something done by the Lord Himself. But it does seem that angels can do that. In Second Chronicles 32, and this is part of their restraining of the wickedness of man, but also being able to powerfully uh, wipe out people. In... Second Chronicles 32, you have Sennacherib who is getting ready to invade Judah. And the Lord has promised that they will not break through the walls. They will not do this thing. So, chapter 32, verse 20. But King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed about this and cried out to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior commander and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned in shame to his own land. And when he had entered the temple of his God, some of his own children killed him there with the sword. Sennacherib is trying to invade Judah. And the Lord says, this isn't going to happen. I'm not going to allow this to happen. And so he sends an angel then to restrain that evil. And he wipes out the whole army. But again, controlling the elements. 
In Revelation chapter 7, which we've been going over on Wednesdays, and again, we have to remember that Revelation is apocalyptic literature where symbolism is the rule, literalism the exception, but there is truth that is behind even the symbols that are given. So in Revelation chapter 7, we find that angels uh, are also taking part in uh, controlling the elements. Chapter 7, verse 2. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of God on their foreheads. Now in chapter 8, you're reading then of the trumpets that are being referenced here. In chapter 8, look, verse 8 for example, the second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch and it fell on the third of the rivers and of the springs of water. The name of the star is called Wormwood and a third of the waters became Wormwood and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The fourth angel sounded in a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. So you have the angelic hosts that are being used in order to bring about these judgments, these judgments upon wicked man using the creation of God. You have, of course, uh, the angels, uh, the seven trumpets, that are sounded, that are corresponding with the seven bowls that are getting ready to be poured out. But you have the indication here that as God is using His creation in order to judge man and to bring about their final judgment, that angels are used as agents in order to bring this about. Not only there, but in Second Samuel 24, we find David numbering Israel when he should have just trusted in the Lord, not trusted in his military might, but David being enticed by Satan, as, as uh, it actually says there as well, chose to number his army and to have that pride in his heart of numbering them. This is how many men I have kind of a thing. Second Samuel 24, beginning of verse 11. After he does this, he has sinned greatly, obviously. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David, thus, go and speak to David, thus the Lord says, I am offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. So David sins. There are three punishments that he can choose from. Seven years of famine. Fleeing before his enemies for three months. Or three days of pestilence. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So he chooses the three days of pestilence. 
So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and 7,000 men of the, of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, It is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So three days of pestilence where 7,000 people were killed and it was done by one angel. And how was it done? By sending a pestilence upon the people. Obviously controlled by the angel. So they are controlling the elements. They are restraining wickedness. Uh, they are messengers. They are ministers of worship. These are things that they do in ministering towards God. And very quickly, I'll just mention this as well, that in ministering towards Christ, that they also rendered service to Him. Of course, Gabriel uh, announcing to uh, Mary of the conception, ministered to Him at His birth. You have in Luke 2 that the, uh, the announcement was given to the shepherds uh, when the angelic choir appeared and they're announcing the uh, birth of Christ and, and protecting Christ as uh, the angel would appear to Joseph in a dream, get up and leave. Okay, it's, it's alright to come back. So they ministered to Christ in that way too, at His birth in the announcements and protecting Christ by helping Joseph to know when it was okay to come back. They ministered to Him even after His temptation and in the garden. You remember after Jesus was tempted by Satan, for 40 days and 40 nights He didn't eat or drink anything and He was tempted by the devil. When the devil left him, the Scripture tells us in Matthew chapter 4 that angels came and ministered to him. Not only then, but when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and He is praying, this is what occurred there as well. Luke chapter 22, beginning of verse 43. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Oh, um, excuse me. Um, verse 43, I read 44. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Yet an angel that came to minister to him during that time of great distress uh, of agonizing over what was getting ready to take place in His beating, His crucifixion, but especially in the fact of the Father imputing to Him all the sins of those who will believe and then being punished by the Father. But the angels were there to minister to Him, to strengthen Him. And then the angels ministering to Him in the sense that they are not only ministering to Him personally, and announcing His birth and announcing these things, but then they are the ones who announce His resurrection. When the women come to the tomb, who were there to announce this? With the angelic host. The angelic hosts are there. He's not here. He's risen, just like He said. The angels render great service to the Lord. Primary function being worship, but they render service in helping the Lord as His agents to restrain wickedness. They are His messengers. 
uh, th there are a number of functions that they do. And we'll have to stop there, but not only are they doing these things unto the Lord, unto Christ specifically, of ministering in all of those times and, and helping to control uh, the wickedness of man as God's agents and all of that, but they minister to believers also in a very special way. So for all of us, as we are listening to what they do unto the Lord, let us not forget that they are ministering spirits sent out into the earth for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. So they also are ministers for you and for me, helping, helping to strengthen us in our time of, of distress, restraining evil in the world, bringing about all that is needed in the will of God, whatever the Lord has commanded them to do. And sometimes we entertain angels even unaware. That's an amazing thought too. These are marvelous, fantastic creatures that the Lord has created for the benefit not only of Himself, but for the benefit of those who will inherit salvation. So, let us stop there and we will continue uh, next time. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank You. Thank You so much for Your angelic host that You have created. You are indeed the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies, the armies of heaven of which the angels are indeed members of. We thank You for all the function that they do in their service to You and in service of those who have called upon Christ in faith. Thank You, Father, that they magnify your glory throughout all the earth. And Father, we, as we said in the beginning, we want to have a right understanding in order that we would look at this marvelous creation that you have created and look back to you and say, what a mighty and wonderful, awesome God we serve. That's where our attention should go. Back to you who created these amazing creatures. Father, I pray that You would allow us to just rejoice in the things that we've learned and seek all the more to, to know uh, rightly about the angelic host and their function towards believers. Father, guide our thoughts in the coming weeks and may You accomplish all You desire in us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.